Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend that I don't right <laughs> Hold now. it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. And welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine. This week, we'll be talking to the celebrated radical economist and scourge of the rich, Thomas Piketty, about his hefty new tome, which offers a history of the world in well over a thousand pages. Capital and Ideology, it's called. It's a follow-up to his astonishing 2014 hit, Capital in the 21st Century, which used reams of data to wake the world up to how inequality was running out of control. But from Brexit to Trump, an awful lot's changed since then, so I'll be asking Thomas what he makes of the rise of populism and everything that has happened in the last six years. But before we talk to the man himself, I'm here with Prospect's Deputy Editor Steve Bloomfield. Now, Steve, you were doing foreign affairs rather than economics-y type stuff, I guess, in 2014. But were you nonetheless very aware of this book? Oh, very much so. And what was fascinating about it was that it was everywhere. I'd go to Turkey or to Brazil or to uh, even Myanmar and you'd meet foreign ministers and they would have a copy on their desk or on their shelf and they'd be talking about it. And it was one of those books that, I mean, you would know this better than me, I'm sure, Tom, but it felt like it was really the first major international book that moved the debate on economics on after the 2008 crash. The fact that it was trying to be truly global meant it did have that reach and it was yeah as I say it was it was being read all over the world by uh, by all sorts of people i mean it's an interesting one because the real widening of inequality that he talked about had happened in the 1980s and to some extent the 1990s and into the early noughties more or less stopped around 2008 because of course the bankers stopped getting their bonuses and all that kind of thing but it was more that the moment was right I think for people to say that they'd been fleeced that the super rich had been running away with all of the 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 wealth and whereas we might have imagined that some of these financiers these bankers these capital investors were doing some kind of wizardly thing that was going to provide prosperity for all of us in the end After the crash, that didn't seem viable anymore. And so people suddenly wanted to read this data. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, there were obviously, you know, quite a few people pre-2008 who were who were angry at the way that the world's biggest economies worked and the global economy worked. But I think you're right, it took the crash for, essentially for the establishment to realise, and I use that word advisedly, but, um, but yeah, the establishment to realise that the way they'd been running the world wasn't working. Yeah, I mean, and this was the twist in the book. It was, first of all, there's a lot more inequality, which, of course... There had been books before the the Spirit Level, which is by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, um, had sort of said, you know, in sociological terms, inequality is the the mother of all evils, if you like. Um, uh, and that was a few years before. But this was different in that it was an economist saying it, and so this kind of woke the Davos set up. He said, like, inequality's here. There's a lot of it. It's been getting worse. And what's more, he looked at this mismatch. Um, what he called R versus G, the return on capital versus the growth in the economy as a whole, to say that it was likely to continue to get worse. So the Davos set then wakes up and is like, oh my God, is this an unsustainable way of running the economy? Um, And I think that was really what made it into, you know, not just a sort of Guardian Easter sensation, but a, a Davos sensation. You met him back in 2014 for the first time, didn't you? When it when his first book came out? Yeah, because like him, as a youngster, I'd spent a lot of time crunching these kind of numbers about inequality and stuff. And so I'd heard whispers when this book came out in French that it was going to be very interesting. So I sort of got him in, in touch with him and said, you know, like if you're in London, come over and see us. And then by the time he arrived, he'd become this kind of star figure. He was number one on the Amazon charts, knocking off Disney's Frozen, I remember, which was the number one book the week before. And so suddenly the Guardian High Command wanted me to follow him round in a in a taxi. Um, they put comedy French music over the top, you know, with an accordion. And it was called On Tour with the Rockstar Economist. <laughs> and it was all so unlikely and he looked very kind of bemused by the whole thing. Uh, you met him again, obviously, recently uh, to talk about his new book. Uh, and you've written an essay about that in the in the new issue of the magazine. Um, in what ways do you think he's moved the arguments on from the arguments he was making in 2014? Does he think the world has actually changed since then? As you'll see in our later conversation, you know, he is now more left wing. He's kind of consciously advocating for this kind of participatory socialism. I mean, it was a left wing book before. It was all about wealth taxes and so on. But now he's kind of left wing across the board, whether it's worker involvements, trade unions, it's not just taxes. He's also moved on in the sense that he tries to widen things out. So rather than just talking about taxes and money, he talks about ideologies, the system of beliefs, the um, practices that allow the rich to keep hold of so much loot while the, the rest of the community suffers. And so he approached this really in from a point of view, I'd say it's more historical than, um, th- than economics. You know, he talks about ancient Hindu civilizations. He talks about what he calls ternary societies, where people were divided into peasants on the one hand, but then nobles and clergy on the other in medieval Europe. And each of them has got a kind of God-given role. And therefore, each of them, if you're a clergy, you're entitled to a share of the tithe that the peasants and the workers have to pay. So he's got this idea that there's always a justification for why things are unequal. It always serves the rich. And so then it provocatively gets you on to and what kind of ideologies are we operating with today and as you say it's more than a thousand pages long 
Yes, it is. And I've spoken to other people. Another person will be having on the podcast quite soon. Paul Krugman, a lot of listeners will know who he is. He was a big part of the Piketty phenomenon last time. This time he's much less sure. He's a punchy columnist and he thinks nothing's worth a thousand pages. But, you know, I think it's probably worth the time, which was pretty considerable. Welcome back to the Prospect interview. I'm here with Thomas Piketty. Thomas, we last met in um, 2014. Since when we've had, um, uh, you know, the arrival of chauvinism, certainly in the White House, arguably in Downing Street. We've had Britain's departure from the European Union. We've had the collapse in your own country of the Socialist Party, complete collapse. Um, And yet, I think this is quite an optimistic book. What are you... What are you drinking that the rest of us aren't? Well, no, look, I, I kept, uh, you know, doing research and I kept thinking about the history of inequality regime. And indeed, this new book, you know, puts more emphasis on the, the political and ideological transformation as the main driving force behind historical changes in the structure of inequality. And so it, it is an optimistic book in the sense that you know, the conservative discourse according to which, uh, you know, inequality cannot change unless you have, uh, you know, major shocks and wars, etc. I think is is excessively um, pessimistic in the end. And when you look at history, you know, you always have a tendency among dominant groups to naturalize inequality. So trying to present them as being natural and trying to, to present the current level of inequality as being the only... Uh, possible ones but in fact in history that's not what you see so I stress a number of, of cases in my book you know for instance the, you know, the case of Sweden in the early 20th century which was used to be a very unequal country and then not really through war but mostly through political mobilization ideological transformation the, the country was uh, changed completely and, and you know used to be one of the most unequal country in Europe with a very sophisticated uh, organization of inequality, voting rights, uh, you know, proportional to property holdings, up to 100 votes for the most, uh, you know, the biggest property owner. So it, it shows that every, you know, deterministic view about the inequality, either based on, you know, econo- purely economic forces or purely technological or cultural forces, you know, is not um, is not uh, able to account for this enormous variation that we see in the past. And I think it will be the same in the future. I mean, um, do you think, obviously we're going to talk mostly about the new book, not the last book, but the, the, the kind of characterization of that is that you'd got this idea at the core of it about the ratio of growth in the economy and growth in wages on the one hand and the return on capital in the other. And so it bred this slightly fatalistic idea that there'd always been a big gap you know that what you own always counted for a lot more than what you earn and that without something big happening like war you'd kind of drift back towards that whereas here you're saying no if you look all around the world you look at many more countries now that the story's more varied is that a fair characterization of the difference yeah well Probably in my previous book, I should have stressed more, you know, all the political determinants and ideological and institutional determinants of the rate of return on capital, which is not 
something we should take as, as given and you know it, it, it really depends on political choices in the end that we that we make I mean I in my previous book I already stressed the possibilities that uh, uh, different uh, tax policy can of course affect uh, the gap between uh, the rate of return and the growth rate but in this new book, you know, because I take um, a broader comparative and, and historical perspective on this, I, you know, stress even more, you know, the role of uh, of politics and institution and ideology in, in shaping this, uh, this this various forces and the, the in the end the balance of forces leading to different inequality uh, dynamics. It could feel like it is almost a history of the world rather than uh, an economics book. I mean, do you think it is an economics book or is it is it something else? I think it's at somewhere at the frontier between history and economics. I, I view my work more as the work of a social scientist and an, an economist or an historian. If I really had to pick a discipline, a field, you know, it, maybe it would be more histories and economics. But, mm. you know, I think... In the end, these frontiers between disciplines, you know, are not uh, as uh, sharp or should not be as sharp as what uh, some economists sometimes try to pretend. And, you know, I think it's only by, uh, by you know, taking a historical perspective on economic issues that we can reopen the economic debate. You know, I think many of the most important issues of the day, you know, about inequality or, if, you know, take the public debt crisis in, in the Eurozone, We've already had lots of similar crises in the past and, and looking at the solution and the alternative solutions that were adopted in the past, I think it's very important to, to reopen the discussion. And when, you know, the problem with economists is that very often they only look at the past 10 years and, and this tends to, to bias their view in a pretty uh, conservative uh, direction mm. because they forget about the diversity of solutions that were actually used in the past, sometimes with great success. So, for instance, you know, if we take this example of the public debt, Germany, after World War II, had a huge public debt. You know, in the late ni- 1940s, they had like 200% or more of national income in public debt. And, and they were able, in the, you know, to get rid of this public debt by a, a policy based on um, exceptional uh, progressive tax on large uh, private wealth holdings mm. uh, large financial and real estate wealth was taxed up to 80-90% you know between 1948-1952 and in the end the, you had the same in Japan exactly at the same time period and, and these were very successful experiences because this is what allowed uh, these two countries and other European countries in different ways to start reconstruction in the 1950s-60s without any public debt and this allowed to invest in, in public infrastructure public education and this was a huge success and it's a bit ironical that uh, today you know we with uh, germany and france you know will explain uh, southern european countries that they need to repay every single euro uh, for the next uh, 50 years and run uh, primary uh, budget surpluses for the next 50 years which is not at all what they did in the 1950s and and so looking back to history I think is a way to to open up the discussion and and to show that there are always alternatives to solve this uh, this economic uh, problem of the day. Can we just have a word on on the economics profession? I remember you wrote at the start of the last book that you've been in the US, these world-leading departments didn't like them because they were a bit narrow and wanted to go back to France where you could work with other people from the other disciplines. And now you can really see that you're working with people from... Uh, the other disciplines. 
I think there's some other things that have crept into economics elsewhere around radical uncertainty, importance of institutions. It feels like we're now in a way that maybe five, six years ago we weren't quite a long way from the kind of Lucas, kind of Gary Beckers, Chicago School of Economics that was dominant when we were both first looking at it. Yeah, you're partly right. Uh, this is changing. This is moving to some extent in the right direction. But I think you should not overestimate uh, this this evolution. You know, there's a very large part of economics department which maybe you don't see because you don't mm. hear about them or you don't see them, but but which have not changed all that much. And so it's a, uh, you know, I'm. I'm This is changing gradually, but uh, it's only very gradual. And, you know, sometimes I am more optimistic about the possibility to bring, uh, you know, other uh, discipline, other social scientists from history department, sociology department, political science to, to study economic issues and not to leave the study of uh, economic problems to economists. I can tell you, you know, a big part of the economics profession is hard to, is hard to change. Uh, it's, uh, you know, there's still a, an obsession, you know, f f f in the training of economists and in, in what young economists need to do to get a job. There's an obsession oh. with uh, technicalities and, and trying to look... Uh, Uh, very scientific by using, uh, you know, mathematical models and, and sophisticated econometric techniques, very often at the expense of, uh, of substance. And uh, so, you know, we, we need a, a more pragmatic approach to economic issues. You know, we... we and do you think you know, that part and, and of... This, this will take time. This and, will take time. And, and do you think that still now, post-crash, post-behavioral economics, post all these sort of innovations that what the economics profession now is doing is sustaining an ideology, the kind of ideology that you've got running right through the book, all different times and places, and whether wittingly or not, defending the rights of private property over everyone else. That's part of the problem. This is true for some segments of the, of the, of the profession. Um, uh, but I think... But, you know, there are different ways to lose your time in uh, in economics. I mean, wh one way is, is with uh, with a lot of uh, you know ideology regarding what what you've just said. But another way, sometimes, is you can lose a lot of time being so much obsessed with uh, uh, identification of the you know the causal impact of A and B that in the end you sort of forget about the big picture and the big question, and you mm. you will focus on very narrow question. And in the end, sometimes people. I can see, you know, young students who you are interested in issues and after five years down the road, 10 years down the road, they are so obsessed with the, the econometric technique and identification that they sort of forget the bigger picture and sometimes they are not really interested anymore in the human societies and social groups that, that they were interested in initially because, uh, you know, there's a tendency in order to look scientific, yeah. the economics profession tends to over-emphasize the... the technical aspect econometric aspect very often at the expense of uh, of substance but and, you know I'm, i'm you know i think this can change and yeah. i'm trying to contribute to that but it's well, yeah, i mean it's it, it's complicated I can if you're you. going to get a criticism for this book it's going to be the opposite one which is you're doing everything you know every discipline and every place and time you've already published it in french have you run into a lot of nitpicking from specialists people finding little things oh well, you're not right about this or 
not not so much but you know i'm 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 very much you know looking forward to more discussion and i should say you know i try in this book to to do my homework and and read a lot of what what historians and and sociologists and political scientists have done and this you know these different uh, topics and societies and historical periods uh, you know of course I, I may miss some of uh, you know I, I probably miss some of the important research in certain areas and I very much hope you know that people will uh, uh, tell me and send me a new research that they have done uh, send me uh, references that we might have missed and you know in order to to make progress for the next time but all I can say is that I have tried you know my best mm -hmm. uh, and I, something that is different from the previous book is that, you know, in the previous book, I was not really using so much, uh, you know, uh, uh, research by my uh, colleagues and I was sort of pushing my uh, my data sources and following this, uh, yeah. this data sources in a sort of single-minded way, which was also maybe the strength of the book, but it was maybe a bit, uh, a bit too much uh, centered on a limited time of sources. The difference is this new book, I take a lot... Uh, you know, it's very enjoyable for me to actually try to summarize and synthesize mm. the work of others. And, and uh, I, I always, when I refer to work on others, you know, I'm not doing that to criticize them. It's always because I love reading these books. Yeah, I yeah. love this research. I've learned, learned a lot. And I'm trying to to give, you know, sort of the best the best presentation and the best uh, summary. And, and this allows to talk about very diverse set of societies and historical experience. Um, and, you know, I, I hope I do it well. And, you know, I apologize, you know, and, and please, <laughs> you, know, I, you know, if I've missed anything, you know, of course, people should tell me. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED, or your travel advisor. And, and, and just tell us a bit about how your life has changed as a result of the sensation, you know, you knocked the, the book about Frozen, the Disney film, off the top of the Amazon charts at one point, and you went from, you know, a very respected but 
very obscure academic, really, in terms of public life, and now you're turning down legions of honour and God knows what. Um, are you asked to comment on everything? Do you have an army of people to help you with research now in a way you wouldn't have done before? I mean, this I still like to do things, you know, my, my own way. And, you know, the book, like all the like all the 169 figures and uh, and tables that are in this book, I really made them myself. I'm very, I, I, you know, I like to do to do the data work myself. So of course, there's a very broad group of researchers that has that has been working with our world inequality database and and this is very collective but all the all the new parts of the book on uh, uh, you know uh, pre-modern societies and colonial societies and and uh, political cleavage you know a lot a lot of this is really a, a new work that i have been doing for the past uh, five years which which is what i like to do so i mm. you know i learned a lot you know the success of the book was you know great experience for me because i was uh, able to to meet lots of people in including in many countries in which i uh, you know that i knew not very well before I met lots of young scholars uh, less young scholars lots of journalists who helped me sometimes access some of the data sources uh, you know in countries in which i didn't have access to the data before that so this was very helpful to try to to broaden the, the and then at some point you know i stopped traveling and i just returned to my so i traveled for one to two years after yeah. the publication of the book and then you know i went back to work lots of reading lots of new uh, archives a uh, lot of new empirical material because this is what you know i like to do so in the end my life you know has not Change so much okay. in the sense that I have returned to my you know work because this is uh, what I like to do and the success of the previous book also gave me a sort of sense of responsibility that you know books can matter can yeah. make a difference and so I I try to do everything I can to improve and, and to you know respond to that. Um, let's come to the solutions, the kind of which always going to have the most political edge uh, you've got towards the end. You're interested in a sort of federative participatory. Socialism, um, again, you've returned to the idea of a wealth tax feature of the last book, but you're not retreating or apologising at all on this idea of working across borders, whereas a lot of people, social democrats in particular, over the last few years have looked at Brexit and the retreat from globalisation, everything that's going on and saying you've got to build social solidarity in a nation because it's the only unit that's ever mobilised people. So the, the, the response that you get, you know, the sort of nationalist uh, and sometimes xenophobic response that you get today is to control the flow of people, to control migration a lot more. I think the right response to me will be more to control the flow of capital and the regulation of capital and the, the redistributive taxation of capital. But in any case, you know, it's clear that the, the model based on no regulation at all and just free uh, free flows of goods, services, capital, uh, you know, is not is not working in the sense that it's contributing to the rise of inequality and it it's sort of it has contributed to bias the, the economic system in favor of the most mobile economic groups uh, in a in a way that has left the, the middle class and the lower economic uh, social uh, social economic groups uh, uh, more and more skeptical. So about you, the economy and about globalization. So, so would you say at the moment we don't have, including in Europe, we don't really have any kind of cross-country democracy? Do you think that we need to accept that globalization might need to go backwards for a bit, goods, people, finance, etc., until we've worked out a way of getting the politics to cross borders? It's, it's the mismatch between the two that's the giving you attention. 
Well, I think if you think of, of free capital flows, you know, I think this, 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 we should step back a little bit. So if you don't have credible exchange of information about who owns what, where, about what wealth was transmitted from what country to the country and how we coordinate uh, the taxation of this high wealth uh, mobile individual, that, then yes, we should step back a little bit. You know, it's, it's not... Otherwise, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy today because, you know, we, we sort of created a system where you have a quasi-sacralized uh, right to you know, accumulate wealth in a country out of the, you know, using the public infrastructure, using the public education system. And then you can just click on a button and transfer this wealth somewhere else and nobody you know, can follow mm. you and, and 30 years later we say, oh, you know, too bad, we don't know who owns what where. But, you know, that in the end contributes to, uh, you know, political reaction by these groups uh, of saying we want to get out of this economic system. So in the case of Europe, you know, this is the, the Maastricht Treaty of 1992 has to be rewritten. You know, the articles defining uh, flow of, uh, of capital and investment have to be rewritten in order to have real sanctions against uh, countries that don't transmit the relevant information and don't participate to a coordinated solution. Or, you know, if, if you don't have this, then, you know, I think countries have a legitimate right to, to withdraw uh, to withdraw from there. You know, remember, the only time when there was a real change, for instance, in the Swiss banking uh, regulation, was when the Obama administration, so this was before uh, Trump <laughs> took over, uh, threatened Swiss banks, you know, to take away their banking license if they don't change the Swiss law to transmit information about US taxpayer uh, financial holding in Switzerland. But if France or Germany were to threaten, say, Luxembourg in the same manner, you know, Luxembourg would say, uh, well, no, but according to the Maastricht Treaty, you know, we don't have to transmit you this information. Yeah. So you cannot put, you know, you cannot take away our banking license and we are going to sue you to the European Union Court of Justice if you try to take these sanctions. So what are we going to do? Should we just wait for US sanctions to do the job for us and you know we so i, I can yes. see you've got your frustrations and your your cross with europe's technocratic kind of uh un hidden ideology of defending people's right to do what they want with their money and all that but you also want this politics to take place across board i mean if you think about brexit mm -hmm. here in london uh, overall do you think that's a tragedy a retrogressive kind of step or do you think it might be the jolt the rest of europe needs to get serious about democracy well, I, you know, I think this Brexit is just going to contribute to more tax competition uh, between uh, European countries and between uh, UK and Europe. So in that sense, you know, that's not going to solve the, the problem because this is just, uh, uh, you know, the attempt by, uh, you know, British and in particular, you know, the British Conservative Party to, to develop a development uh, strategy that is uh, more and more based on uh, fiscal competition, uh, fiscal dumping, social dumping. So that's not going to going to help but at the same time you know i think we cannot you know there's a responsibility by all european countries and and in particular france and germany and french and german political leaders uh, which made the european union you know political construction that has not been favorable uh, to uh, you know lower and middle economic groups you know i show in my book it's very striking that if you look at the the social profile of the vote for uh, brexit but also the vote 
in the uh, French referendum of mm. 1992 and 2005, in all this referendum over Europe, whether in France or in Britain, uh, you know, you only have the, the top 20 or 30 percent income groups or wealth group or high education groups that mm -hmm. really supported uh, the, you know, European uh, Uh, integration and and whereas the bottom 50 or 60 percent group voting against it so at some point you have to take this seriously yeah yeah and and so you can are you taking it seriously when you're saying and so we're going to have more cooperation across borders if, if the if the people you want to help are the ones who most reject so that's why you have to do it in a completely different way i think with a smaller group of countries so you know that's not going to work as with uh, with uh, 28 or actually now it's 27 <laughs> and you, you know so you can wait for the 27 to become uh, two or three before doing something <laughs> but I, i think you know we have to uh, do it uh, beforehand so you know le let me give you an example if you take corporate taxation yeah uh, you cannot wait for you know european union countries to agree on a common corporate tax so what what can you do in the meantime well i think you know one one way to, to address the problem is uh, okay if you you are in france or in germany you know i assume you have a corporate tax rate of 30% and you have some companies that are uh, you know that locate their profits in Luxembourg and Ireland and will pay uh, 10% or 5%. And these companies uh, want to export goods and services uh, to you, to mm. France. Then, you know, the tax gap, that the missing tax that they are not paying on their profits, you know, I think should be in effect, uh, you know, you should make them pay this missing profit tax you know, in proportion to what they want to export in goods and services to your country. Now, you could say, well, this is just like a, uh, like a tariff on international trade. Well, uh, partly this is the case, but there's one big difference, is that if the con other country raises their corporate tax rate back to 30%, then the, ta the tariff okay. disappears. Yeah. So, so it's not, it's, so you can see, That it's it's very different from you know what the kind of tariff that maybe Trump will do yeah, or you know yeah. I don't know what Boris Johnson will do but but uh, you know the big difference is you do something you don't wait for all countries to agree to do something but you do something in a way that tries to put incentives to another countries to yeah. move toward cooperation yeah. and I think you can do the same for uh, capital flows is that you know the the purpose is not to end the flow of trade or the flow of capital. Yeah. The purpose is to go in the direction of more cooperation. But you cannot wait. And looking at the, I mean, Labour did surprisingly well in the general election two and a half years ago. It did very, very badly in the election just in December. Going back to the kind of optimism question, uh, you know, because they, they were talking big talk in the December general election about worker involvement and uh, new forms of ownership and so on, like lots of things that you're keen to see addressed. Um, did, did you follow it enough to have thoughts on um, what went wrong with Labour trying to do these things over here? Well, as you, as you said, in 2017, you know, they had the same... Uh, policy platform and they did very well and they were very close to the to, to winning they were very close to the conservative party and as a as they, as they actually the fraction of the popular vote that they attracted was the, the highest in electoral history for a long time or it was more than what blair did during most of the blair election so what happened between 2017 and 2019 probably there were you know i'm not going to get into the details of the you know the, the corbyn stand and, and all the issues but i think Clearly, there was one big difference is that in 2017, the Brexit question was sort of out of the way in, in some sense because the referendum had taken place and uh -huh. people sort of assumed it will 
get implemented and, mm. and so the, the political discussion was more on the domestic issues and, and social policies and, and reduction of inequality. And then the labor platform did pretty well and was able to attract a, a lot of voters, especially young voters. Um, in 2019, the big difference is that this whole discussion was centered around Brexit. And this was, of course, very divisive for uh, for the left and 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 for okay. the and for the and for the labor uh, electorate. You know, for the reason we 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 were talking about before, which is that the you know the social cleavage around Europe is is huge. Basically, it's only the top of the distribution that supports. Uh, Europe, but it's not only in Britain. You know, it's the same in France. It's the same. It's not a problem with Britain. It's a problem with Europe. It's a problem with Europe. So if Europe had had a more, uh, you know, social dimension and, and labor law and uh, company law and progressive taxation, you know, it would have made it much easier, uh, you know, for for. Uh, for the Labour Party uh, on, on, on this discussion. So, I, you know, this was a very complicated situation. I don't want to say that, you know, all the choices that were made by Corbyn or the Labour Party were the best one. And, the, you know, I'm not going to get into that. I've not been involved into that. But this was a very complicated situation for reasons that were due to the working of European Union itself and for reasons that were due to the choice made by the Conservative Party to go for this referendum and to... And, to and so you wouldn't, for example, if you were a democratic activist in the United States, look at what's happened in Britain and think, we better not go for a left-wing old guy like Bernie Sanders who might look like an American Jeremy Corbyn. You think actually Sanders might be able to beat Trump? Yes, you know, we, I think nobody knows the answer to this question. I, but my, my, I suspect uh, that, yes, he might be able. You know, I, if you look at the electoral participation among the lower, uh, you know, lower to middle uh, income groups or socioeconomic groups in the US or actually in Britain or actually in France, you've had a huge drop in electoral participation. Well, in the US, it's never been a very high participation among lower socioeconomic groups, but it's it's really extremely low. If you take the bottom uh, 50% income groups, you have very limited electoral participation. So one possible, you know, you could say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. It will always be like that. But I think in the end, if you have a policy platform that speaks more to the to the bottom socio-economic groups in terms of you know raising the minimum wage, uh, uh, more uh, funding for public education, uh, more redistribution of income and wealth. You can get higher participation. And and you know I, I I show the data in my in my book. All the decline in total uh, electoral turnout that happened in Britain or France since the 1970s is, uh, or 1980s is entirely due to the bottom 50% mm. income groups. Not at all from, you know, the people at the, in the top groups, they just vote as much as they did before. So how, what's your interpretation for that? Uh, to me, the interpretation is that pr probably many of these voters feel that what they are being offered both by the Conservative and the Labour Party and all the parties, you know, is just not very interesting for them. And so some of them have moved to Conservative and Brexit Party or some of them have moved in France to the National Front Party. Mm. But many of them just stay home. And if they were very enthusiastic about the, the Brexit or about Le Pen in France, you know, they would all go and vote and with huge participation. Right. But that's not what you see. You see... You see so I... You know, the question is, how can you mobilize these voters? Mm. And, you know, it would seem to me that the policy platform 
that is more appealing to these voters in terms of redistribution and wage and education, you know, looks like a natural way to do it. So, yes, I think it's possible to, to win uh, for the left by, by trying to mobilizing more uh, these voters. And, and I think the view that there's nothing you can do to mobilize more these voters, you know, it's a very nihilistic Uh, view of, uh, of politics and just give us a word on france the france you grew up with of Mitterrand, the political culture probably a bit healthier but when you look at some of your charts which are very nice and clear in the new book like you haven't had the same over 40 years you haven't had anything like the same runaway rocketing up in right. income inequality in france that you've seen in the united states have you And yet the political culture from here looks like it's gone almost as wrong. Well, because, you know, people in France, or actually or people in Germany or people in Italy, you know, they don't compare themselves to the United States or to Brazil. And, you know, they don't say, okay, we should be very happy because we have less inequalities than in the US or in Brazil. You know, that's not the way people think. You know, they will compare themselves to the previous historical period. They see uh, rising inequality, uh, less growth. And so they're asking, you know, why, you know, what, why, why do we need toward even, uh, you know, more rise of inequality? You know, is this, is this useful? And so I think they're asking, uh, you know, they're asking the, the, the right question. And I and don't do you think... understand the yellow vests? Why the? Well, look, for, in the case of the yellow vest, you know, the, the, here we have a specific problem with the, with the Macron government. You know, the, the Macron government, you know, in, in effect, sort of put together the sort of most uh, favored uh, socio-economic groups from the right and from the left, from the previous, uh, you know, right, center-right party and center-left parties and put them together into a, into a coalition. Uh, you know, if you look at who voted for Macron in the first round of the presidential election in 2017 and even more so who voted for Macron in the European election last year, you know, this is a, uh, you know, very small among low income group, low education group and it, it you know, it goes up like uh, crazy uh, if you move up the, the, the group. And, and this had a clear, uh, you know, you know, this is in clear relation with the policies that were uh, conducted. So wh what was very uh, clear with the Yellow Vest movement is, you know, it's, it's very rare that a government is so clear about the fact that is raising energy tax on you know like normal people uh, taking uh, uh, their car to go to work and then use the tax revenue to pay for the repeal of the wealth tax which is really exactly what happened if you look at the amount in the budget mm. of 2017 2018 You know, there was 5 billion euros more tax on energy and 5 billion euros less tax on, on uh, high wealth taxpayer and high capital income taxpayer. And, and, and this was clearly stated as such. You know, Macron will go to TV and say, you know, he has this famous speech about the premier de cordée, so, you know, the first in the, in, in, in the economic chain, which, according to him, you know, need to be uh, uh, better treated in France in order to, to you know, to... to to have more incentives to, uh, you know, uh, create more jobs or whatever. And, and it's very rare, you know, someone who, who would say sort of so clearly, uh, okay, you know, the vast majority of the population is going to pay more tax to, to, you know, to pay a transfer <laughs> to the top. And this is exactly what you should not do, especially when it comes to carbon taxation and energy policy. You know, you should, if you want to increase carbon tax, at the very least, you should use the tax revenue to invest in, transportation system in uh, uh, renewable energy or to compensate 
you know, the lowest income household for the, you know, the extra energy tax. But if you use the tax revenue for something completely different, and here for the, you know, making tax cut for the very rich, you, you run into troubles. And, and this has created, you know, an atmosphere in, in, in France, which is very, uh, um, yeah, which I think is politically very, very dangerous. It feels to me like the, the core purpose of the book is to say, like, my God, if you look back over history, things do change. They can change quite fast. They change a lot. And so maybe things can change again. You talk quite a lot about how important the Soviet Union was, even though you're very critical of Soviet communism, just in giving the rest of the world a sense that things could be different. And so when you look at China now, do you think that could play a similar role to make Western elites think that they might need to consider doing things differently? Or do you think capitalism's reigning unchallenged still? Unchallenged in the world in general, but I don't think, I'm not sure the change will come from uh, from China or from Russia. And, you know, as I show in my book, you know, post-communist Russia and post-Maoist uh, China, you know, have become in a way the best allies of hyper-capitalism. So, you know, in Russia, uh, you know, there's not, you don't have any progressive income tax, you know, it's 13% uh, income tax, whether you have 100 rubles per month or 1 billion rubles per month. And, you know, even Trump will not dare uh, uh, proposing this. And in, in both in Russia and in China, you have uh, no inheritance tax at all. So, you, you know, you privatize uh, sometimes natural resources or, you know, public companies to the benefit of, uh, of small groups, often close to the political uh, um, rulers and and then you can transmit everything at uh, you know zero percent tax and hong kong is you know which we was recently in the news and will certainly be again in the news in the future is the incredible example of a country where you you have actually higher inequality and they have actually repealed their inheritance tax after they joined a communist country or after they've at least they join the country you know, under the control of the Communist Party of China. And today, you know, in Asia, if you have a large uh, wealth to transmit, you know, you should go and die in uh, in mainland China rather than in uh, capitalist Taiwan or capitalist South Korea or Japan, tax. where you will pay, you know, up to 50% inheritance tax. And in Japan, this was raised to 55% a few years ago by a center-right government. And so the fact that post-communist Russia and and China, which is still supposed to be communist, but, mm. you know, as a zero percent tax and, and so much opacity about, uh, about uh, you know, wealth concentration is a clear example of, you know, how this huge uh, ideological shift, you know, can have a lasting impact. And I think, you know, the failure of, of communism and, and the way it has been instrumentalized in Russia and China to, to push uh, this kind of, uh, of inequality is, you know, is still something that is that will be with us for a long time and that is putting uh, limits to to um, to uh, you know all the discussion we may want to have about uh, you know uh, revolution and transparency and and so you know we have the price to pay for the failure of communism you know has been huge and is still huge and will remain large for a long time i mean you've shone a light on an awful lot of data in the new book and there's big data because of the internet and stuff i mean overall do you think we are getting more information you worry about some regimes opacity but like uh, all the fixes you want to see rely on there being good clean data available um do you think we're going in the right direction overall as a world on that or, or not 
Well, you know, in the, in the very long run, we are going in the right direction in the sense that, you know, even after the rise of inequality since the 1980s, 90s, you know, today's world is less unequal than, uh, than 100 years ago. And, and uh, you know, I, I think in the long run, we can... Uh, continue this strategy toward the reduction in inequality and, and a more uh, equitable economic system. But in the short run, uh, you know, I'm afraid, you know, the level of opacity uh, about uh, inequality of income and wealth, you know, as, as, you know, as not really, you know, this has not really improved in, uh, in, in recent years. And, and, uh, you know, we still have, uh, in a you know, a situation where, uh, you know, public uh, authorities, you know, don't use Uh, banking information about you know who owns what and and so uh, you know we we are trying the best we can to put together the best existing data sources but but frankly uh, the situation is not uh, is not satisfactory at all and you end up in a situation where you know even the European Central Bank when they want to know uh, what happens to their quantitative easing for the distribution of financial assets in Europe they end up using a Forbes billionaire survey to correct uh, their household wealth survey because mm. you know they know that their household wealth survey based on self-reported um, uh, information by household is missing you know half of financial assets uh, in Europe so then they make correction using uh, using you know magazine rankings which were constructed using uh, you know very little uh, clear uh, methodological principle or data sources so um, what I mean by this is that we people were aware of that you know I think they would they will be very surprised to see that the era of, of big data you know uh, you, you, it could be true for private monopolies who, uh, who use our uh, our personal data but for uh, in terms of public information and and public data on income and wealth you know we live in an age of big uh, opacity rather than, than, than big data. And, you know, I think this is a political choice. This could be different. You know, you could decide to use the banking information on private uh, wealth portfolios so that you have directly the information uh, among uh, tax administration and, and the European Central Bank and tax authorities. But part of the reason I think why we don't do that is because some people are afraid that if we have the information, then it will be easier also to redistribute and tax wealth. So this all uh, goes together. Final, final question. Um, you've taken here a kind of um, many, many centuries view of economic history of how things are shared for better or worse. And uh, you've said there's a lot of flux. Um, you might not want to, but try and look forward 30 years. You've talked about the great inequality turn from 1980 uh, up until now where the, the West certainly has seen an increase in Uh, and India and China as well in 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 riches at the top. Yes, I think so because I think you know the the the, the nationalist route that we see right now, in the end, is not going to work. Is not going to solve the problem. Uh, you know, it's not. It's certainly not going to solve the problem of rising inequality because it will tend to push toward more tax competition if you look at the Trump policies or what is likely to be the Boris Johnson policy in Britain you know I think this will exacerbate the trend toward rising inequality this will not solve uh, you know climate change problem which requires you know a reduction of inequality and more internationalist solution so in the end you know there will be you know there will be a disappointment with this solution and and i think we'll will come to uh, to solutions that will be more than what i'm describing in the book i mean certainly probably not exactly what i'm saying but i think mm. we will move more in this direction 
uh, and you know how much time it will take and what form it will take and you know how much of a of a setback we need to go through before going there uh, this i don't know but uh, but you know what makes me optimistic is that in the long run i see a process of uh, learning learning about justice learning about the proper economic institution uh, fiscal institution uh, social institution uh, in order to you know uh, reduce inequality and have a more uh, equitable uh, economic system and this has been going on for uh, for uh, for a long time and uh, you know i think the contradictions uh, of the of the current economic system uh, will you know will have to be Uh, addressed at some point because mm. you know they, right, right now you know you have a, a theoretical narrative that uh, uh, globalization and generalized competition between countries is bringing uh, prosperity but then the contradiction is that a large part of the middle class and pro-economic groups don't don't see this, this prosperity for for themselves so you have an attempt to tell them okay this is because of the mexican workers this is because of china this is because of the polish workers but In the end, even if you get rid of, of, uh, of you know Polish workers and the Mexican workers or whatever, you know yeah, it's not it's not going to be enough to solve the problem. So at some point we'll have to move to something else, and this something else will be, I think, uh, you know, um, uh, more redistribution and more sharing of uh, of uh, economic power and and property. Thomas, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. all from us this week thanks for joining us for the prospect interview and we'll see you again next week you can read my feature on thomas piketty's capital ideas in the new issue of prospect which is out at newsstands now and also on our website finally if you enjoyed the prospect interviews please do leave us a rating and review rebecca lou is our producer goodbye and we'll see you again next week 